Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, dear Octavia, how are you? I'm very well, and I will tell you why. It's because the hyacinth bulbs that you brought me the other Aww. week have blossomed into these gorgeous purple beautiful, delicious smelling things. And I'm just like beside myself every time I see them in the morning when I'm making my my tea. I'm just like, spring, I can taste it. Uh, and they make me think of you, which is always nice. How about you? How are you? Oh, that's lovely. Well, I have bought some tulips to put on my table. So I'm having a similar bloom experience. And I think fresh flowers are a way to brighten the day always. Oh my God, so, it's the best, isn't it? Yeah. But on to the show. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Tanya Brannigan about her first book, Red Memory, Living, Remembering, and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution. Tanya was the Guardian correspondent in China for seven years, and Red Memory is about China's cultural revolution, a decade of upheaval, purging, and torture that began under Chairman Mao in 1966. Crucially, it's also about the act of both remembering and forgetting this period and history in general and the role the Chinese government and people have played in that process. This book is, among many other things, a feat of reportage. And so on the show today, we'll also be exploring journalism and literature. We'll talk about our favorite works of reportage by authors like, you guessed it, Patrick Radden Keefe, <laughs> <laughs> the sometimes murky ethics of reporting a story, and the relationship between compelling narrative and fact. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Tanya Octavia? Sure, Carrie. Tanya Brannigan is The Guardian foreign leader writer. She spent seven years as The Guardian's China correspondent. Her writing has also appeared in The Washington Post and The Australian. Red Memory is her first book. Also, a quick reminder, we are on Patreon, and if you would like to support the work that we do and get shiny extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction, where you will get monthly exclusive minisodes, as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. We've had some really, really fun topics lately, including our thoughts about Spare by one HRH Prince, whatever, and uh, how we feel about the beginnings <laughs> of books featuring a fun interactive game for you. So, you know, what's not to love? <laughs> you can also find a list of all the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Now stay tuned for our interview with Tanya Brannigan, a discussion of journalism and literature, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So stop the presses for the next hour of literary friction. <laughs> Harry Plitt, that one was, that's unforgivable. <laughs> that's unforgivable. And yet you keep forgiving me. I do. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Tanya Brannigan, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you. We've asked you to start with a reading from Red Memory. Do you mind setting it up for us? So this is an extract um, from the chapter I wrote, which was really about my experiences talking to psychotherapists, working with survivors from the era, uh, but also with their children and even grandchildren, because the scars have gone so deep and the pain has really sort of been passed down through the generations, even or perhaps especially when families don't talk about it. The past walked with all survivors, 
Friends edged around family secrets and tensions, glancing at the causes. I sensed it in the rage and volatility of some I met, and in the fractured recall of others. Trauma punches the holes that power must drill into language, memory, families. But really, it was everywhere, a pain that ate people up and wore them out. It corroded their stomachs, acid, relentless, or came in spasms sharp enough to paralyse. Piercing headaches reduced them to tears and rage. They shut their eyes, but sleep never came, or they drifted and dozed and jerked awake, clammy, and lay cold and hot and cold. They lived in a grey world of exhaustion, worn thin. They tried Western medicine and Chinese, and tablets found online or pressed on them by friends. It wasn't an ulcer. It wasn't cancer or migraines. They went again to doctors who inspected tongues, took pulses, drew blood, ordered scans, wrote prescriptions, stuck them with needles, shrugged their shoulders, rang specialists. Eventually, sent on and on, they found themselves resentful and wary in another office. Their answers were terse, suspicious, little hard beads of fact and complaint unstrung. It was a struggle to order them. Most just wanted the pills. The children and grandchildren came. Sometimes their bodies had the same sicknesses, the sharp pains, the unexplained lethargies. Occasionally they spoke of other troubles, admitting that they were stressed and depressed and anxious and did not know why. Last year there had been a student, a dutiful young man, a little quiet but friendly enough with classmates. His grades had been high, his behaviour immaculate, until the day he posted a precise description of how he wanted to kill his teacher, how he woke up in his dorm room and seized a viciously sharp knife, how he walked into the room and saw his tutor, how he threw the man's scolding tea. It ran on and on. And the university authorities, when they read it, asked the mental health staff for help, who sought help from specialists who, in turn, approached a psychoanalyst. No one could reconcile those graphic words with this pleasant, unremarkable boy. His parents had a good relationship. They got on well with their son. They rushed to the college when they heard of his trouble and rented a flat so his mother could live with him while he underwent treatment. His father was almost silent, but supportive. Over the weeks, it emerged, to the family's shock, but not entirely to the psychoanalysts, that he had lived with deep depression for years. Throughout his son's life, he had drummed in the same lessons. Keep your distance. Keep your guard up. Don't trust anyone. Never, ever let them see you are angry. He drove the message home again and again, and never told his son why. He had watched his own father murdered by Red Guards. He suppressed the pain and fear and rage for almost half a century, and still it had betrayed him and his child. Thank you so much for that reading, Tanya. And I think it shows how beautifully written the book is, but also how much the book is not just about the cultural revolution in China, but about the after effects and about memory and forgetting. And we will get into all of that. But first, I thought I just wanted to ask you to talk about what the cultural revolution was in China, because reading this book, I realized I knew very little about it. And yet, as you say, this was a period in Chinese history after which 
no part of the land remained untouched and no part of the people unscathed. I mean, it is a very hard era, I think, for people to comprehend. And that was something that interviewees often said to me. It was a political kind of campaign or movement that went on for 10 years. So Mao unleashed it in 1966, and it didn't end until after his death 10 years later. Uh, At its heart, really, it was Mao's attempt to reassert political supremacy. So he felt that his position and his legacy was challenged um, following the Great Leap Forward. He'd launched this very hubristic campaign to industrialise China and transform its agricultural economy by collectivising it all. And it went disastrously wrong, causing tens of millions of deaths in a famine uh, and had to be reined in by more pragmatic figures within the party. So what really made it distinct from other political campaigns that he ran was that he turned outside the party, and this time he turned to the masses, particularly young people, teenagers, often very young, sort of 13, 14 in some cases, to be his sort of political vigilantes and launch this movement. And of course, as soon as you invite the public in, um, it becomes something so much bigger. Two million people died, uh, tens of millions of people were hounded, and it rippled out right across the country. So Mao's two heirs apparent would die in the movement, and so did very well-known scholars and cultural figures and artists, but also so did ordinary families, even children in some cases, who were murdered because they were seen as belonging to sort of landlords' families. So it was a devastating movement, um, but also it was a very close, a very personal one in the sense that it was often people close to you who turned upon you. It might be somebody in your workplace. It might in some cases be people within your family. And I think that's really what made it so devastating. Yeah, especially when you describe the way it gets inside families and the legacy, as in the, the section that you read of intergenerational trauma, it's it's so out of the hands of Mao once it's seeded into everybody's families. It makes sense. I mean, you you were the Guardian correspondent in China from 2008 to 2015. And when in that time did you first decide that you wanted to write a book about the Cultural Revolution? It took me a long time, to be honest. And I spent a long time, in a sense, trying not to write a book about the Cultural Revolution because I had a fairly demanding day job. And I felt my job was looking at what was happening in China at that time in front of me. But the starting point was really a conversation I had with an investor um, I knew. And we just happened to be talking, having lunch. And he suddenly mentioned how he'd driven to a village quite close to Beijing a few years before to try and find the body of his father-in-law, who had killed himself after being taken prisoner by, by Red Guards. And when they went to look for the body, the villagers were actually quite sympathetic and they remembered his father-in-law and so forth, but then they they just couldn't really understand what he was doing. They said, well, you know, there are so many bodies around here. How on earth are we supposed to know which one's his? And there was something about that that really haunted me, I think. It, it wasn't the worst thing I heard, I'd heard about the Cultural Revolution, and it's definitely not the worst thing that happened in the Cultural Revolution. But it just seemed so close somehow. And the fact that its effects rippled on, um, and that Carol, his wife, when she spoke about it, 
was still living with this absence. You know, she said she didn't even know what it would have, what it, what it would mean to have a father. So there was that sense of it being very immediate and very close. And I think that was something that made me aware of how little I knew about the Cultural Revolution and also how little I'd understood the impact that it still had on China to this day. Um, and what then happened, I found, was that I felt I kept getting drawn back to the subject because so many times I went to interview someone about contemporary events to talk about politics with them or to talk about the economy or to talk about culture. And suddenly I would find that just below the surface, really, if you wanted to understand what they were talking about, you had to go back to the Cultural Revolution. And then the other thing that was happening at the time was that more people were coming forward to talk about it because it's always been a, a sensitive subject to some degree. But there were more people who wanted to talk about what they had experienced and what they had done, particularly as Red Guards, and to apologise in some cases to victims or their families. And it felt as if there were people who wanted to keep this memory alive often incidentally in quite a nostalgic way. It wasn't all people lamenting it. There's still a kind of great fondness for the Cultural Revolution. Uh, but it felt like a subject that was actually very alive and very present, even at the same time that it was a subject that was sort of in many ways silenced and sort of consigned to the fringes. There was this paradox there. And getting back to what I mentioned at the beginning what this book ends up being is not just about the cultural revolution and, and people's experiences within it, but it's about memory itself. And also how, as you say, China today, you can't understand China today and you can't understand what's happening in China today without understanding the cultural revolution. So I, I wonder, was that always an essential part of the story for you? Was that always something that you knew you wanted to include and really muse upon rather than just telling these stories in your book? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the thing that unites the people in my book is that they are all people who have chosen to look at the past, uh, to remember the past, to keep the past alive in one way or another. And that was really what interested me. There are wonderful books on the Cultural Revolution. I mean, there are memoirs like The Cowshed, uh, there are history books like uh, The World Turned Upside Down by Yang Jisheng. Um, there's, there's a wealth of information out there. Um, but what I was interested in was what it meant and why it mattered now, really, and how it was living on in China today. There's a line, actually, that really speaks to that, that struck both me and Carrie very much which is, uh, you write, facts are or should be sacred to journalists and historians at least, but facts are not the whole truth. Which we select and how we weave them together, that matters too. And I feel like uh, with a book that where conversation is so much at the heart of this book and memory, which as we know is fallible, I wonder how you found yourself balancing this real commitment to fact when you're dealing with things that are as amorphous as memory and feeling? Oh, that is such an interesting question. Um, I think you obviously have to set the conversations you have within the context of the time. And as I said, luckily, there is a wealth of research. There are lots of wonderful books by scholars that I turn to 
but also because I wanted to explore precisely that question of how we remember. I mean, in that sense, I would say it's not a book about China or not just a book about China, but I was interested in how we remember and forget things. And obviously, no country is really honest about its own history. And all of us have particular views of the experiences we have had. So possibly when I started, I had a sort of a, a slightly naive idea of this as as really being exploring how people were keeping things alive in a quite straightforward sense that, you know, perhaps there was pressure on them from the authorities. But then one thing that became very evident to me was that the personal trauma had played such a role in silencing discussion uh, of the era. And also that even where people remembered it, and even when people had a sort of broadly similar outlook on it, so it wasn't just a divide between people who actually um, believed there had been good aspects and people who just said, we mustn't go back there. Um, but even among people who said, well, we need to remember this kind of event so that it can't happen again, there were sort of these great divisions even between them in how you should talk about it and what you should remember. And of course, in their own accounting of what they had or hadn't done. And I think my hope was that I could try and uncover how they looked at the past and their role in it in as honest uh, and accurate a way as I could, but without people judging them, because I think none of us can imagine what it would have meant to live in that time, a time of sort of impossible moral choices. And speaking of forgetting and and sort of how we construct history, you talk throughout the book about the idea of historical nihilism and how that has taken hold in some ways in, in China and really shaped the way that um, the party at least thinks about history. And I wonder if you could talk about that and how that comes into the book. Yes. I mean, as with many aspects of sort of Chinese politics, you can kind of trace the roots much further back in a sense, in that long before the communists came to power, uh, there was an idea of history as being a sort of moral force in, in a way that perhaps religion might be in other cultures, that in other words, people sort of looked to history to think about what you should or shouldn't do and form judgments in that sense. Um, the party, even when it first came to power, was very keen to ensure not only that it sort of put this socialist utopia in front of people, but that it kept reminding people how terrible it was before the, the communists came to power. So from very early on, they start holding these sorts of rituals, which are about remembering past bitterness and cherishing current happiness. They're constantly saying to people, look back at all this suffering, particularly at foreign hands, uh, and also more generally under feudalism and the, and the emperors of the past. But look back at the suffering we've had. We're the people who've rescued from that. Now, that becomes an even more important part of the narrative after 1989 and the massacre of pro-democracy protesters. Um, because that really finished off the narrative of the party serving the people. And the party turned to a narrative of economic prosperity, but also this kind of historical mission. And at that point, they begin promoting what's called patriotic education. So uh, 
this idea never forget national humiliation they have all these what they call red history sites that people are encouraged to go and visit um they beef up the textbooks for children all this kind of thing and then when xi jinping comes along it's again sort of taken even that one level further so historical nihilism's not a new idea but it was an idea that had sort of existed in with a degree of obscurity i guess and xi jinping seizes this and makes it really quite central and these days we've even got to the stage where there's a sort of hotline you can call up and uh give tips that somebody you know is sort of pursuing historical nihilism so it's it's become this kind of very potent idea um which is about policing a very particular version of the past and that's of course a version which says uh, that the party not only is in charge but has to be in charge in a sense to sort of save the country and and make it great again gosh <laughs> it's um it's so intense hearing about the different branches of control like social control that spread from something like this i mean we've mentioned a little bit the red guard but i wonder you know your opening chapters really cover the red guard and as you mentioned they were you know young young people school children mobilized by mao at the start of the cultural revolution um to do something similar to what you're describing just at the other end of things right to punish those who were out of line with the party line um but for anyone who doesn't really understand can you talk a little bit about what the red guard was and how mao got all of that started So the first red guard groups um initially formed sort of semi-spontaneously I suppose you could say the cultural revolution really begins where with the issuing of what's called the May 16th notification and that only goes out within the party at a fairly senior level but it talks about um the sense that the party has lost its way that there are revisionists nestling right at the heart of the party so it makes it clear that the enemy is within the party itself then uh a woman puts up a poster denouncing the leadership uh, of a university in Beijing and what's really key about that is firstly that there was uh, clearly involvement from the top in her doing so but then secondly that Mao orders that to be read over the radio and when that goes out it sends a signal um that people are allowed to criticize to turn upon leaders obviously not Mao um but people at a sort of lower level and we start to see red guard groups forming sort of spontaneously these kind of political vigilante groups that form on campuses uh, and in schools and they take on the leadership there take on officials and start uh struggling them as it's called denouncing them attacking them in some cases beating them physically then what happens is that mao holds a mass rally for around a million red guards in beijing and accepts a red guard armband uh, from one of the teenagers there and that really sends out a signal to everyone that not only does he know these red guard groups exist but they have his approval and they are told by the defense minister to go out and sort of smash smash the old ways all the old customs and things and so you then see this kind of explosion of political zealotry and violence across Beijing in which you see um treasures being smashed set fire to you see leaders being criticized and attacked scholars being shamed and also you see people being physically attacked 
and in many cases uh, murdered. So, so thousands uh, of people uh, die die as this violence begins to sort of ripple out. And there's something so horrifying about the way it, the movement is able to co-opt the kind of fragility of youth, right? Like the the ease with which you can whip a teenager into a frenzy because they are not um, necessarily able to know what it means to be responsible for their actions. Like there's something that seems especially horrifying about that. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, we have to remember that these are people who had been brought up to worship Mao. Um, they'd been brought up in an atmosphere of great sort of revolutionary struggle. That was the ideal. They'd been brought up feeling their country was under threat, which of course, you know, in a sense it was. The sort of communist grasp on power looked potentially quite fragile still at that point. Um, But also they've been brought up with these ideas of revolutionary purity and of struggle. Now, many of their parents had fought against the communists. They'd fought against nationalists. Um, The Red Guards, who at the beginning mostly came from elite families, had been brought up believing that you had to do these things, but also had not had these opportunities, in a sense, to put this ideal of struggle into action. And suddenly they were being told, you know, this is your moment. And I think that must have been so overwhelming and powerful for them. And then, of course, once it starts and everybody around you is doing it, you become swept up. And to me, that was sort of one of the most interesting things that the the Red Guard I first speak to spoke not only about Um, the violence she'd witnessed but she'd been sort of horrified by a lot of it and had drawn back from it and refused to participate but then she said you know there was a part of her that even though she felt it was wrong to beat people and she shouldn't be doing it there was also a part of her that thought well maybe I'm not pure enough maybe I'm just I don't believe enough you know is this kind of a weakness on my part because that atmosphere that environment was so potent. Yeah and one of the things that I really loved about this book is how you almost interrogate your own feelings about people's excuses or rationalizations or sort of stories around why they did what they did. And um, an extreme example of that, I suppose, is the chapter about the man who turned his own mother in, who was later executed. And as he tells his story to you, he's full of remorse. It's this kind of deep mourning that he's displaying, but you say you're left unmoved. And then you kind of go into why that might be. I mean, why why did you want to layer his story with your own reaction and your sort of skepticism, I suppose? I think because there is great complexity in how people remember and what people are able to remember. And that is part of the trauma and in terms of including myself, I wanted to have, I guess, a level of questioning of what we perhaps expect from people. I mean, it, certainly it was clear when I spoke to people who'd lived through the era that there are obviously aspects of it that are so contested and somebody will apologise and then other people will say, well, that's not sincere and that's not good enough. And, um, you know, they're, they're not really taking responsibility. And it's very complicated because you may feel, well, in a sense, they're not perhaps being as candid as they could be, but then perhaps how many people could bear to look at what they had done? Uh, And you're in a situation where, of course, many more people have done terrible things and never spoken of them at all and, and still aren't willing to acknowledge them. So I think it's human that 
we have a reaction to the people we speak to. But I also wanted to ask, I suppose, what we expect of people and that it's it, it's clearly not a straightforward thing for someone to survive that era, even when they're willing to talk about it and acknowledge what they've done. There may be complications there. There may be things that we find hard to accept or to understand. And that probably also says something about us and our expectations and our understanding of what they've been through as much as it does about them. And I think in that case, one of the the things that sprang to mind was when he talks about his mother and he says, you know, we all need to take responsibility for what happened. And of course I do. Um, and my family does. But then he also says, well, my mother should as well, because she didn't bring me up to question what we were told enough. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And also something else that you really give a sense of in the book through certain conversations in particular is how the tide could turn so fast under this regime. I mean, one of the conversations that stood out to me was um, you speak to a person called Wang Shilin, who's a composer, and he fell in and out of favor with the communist government over the course of his career. And he ended up being brutally tortured during the Cultural Revolution. And it really left me thinking about the relationship between art and totalitarianism and how the Cultural Revolution was this movement against so much. Um, you know, if we think of art as being how we say the unsayable, what we reach for to express things that it's too difficult to express in words or words are too blunt an instrument for maybe. And the relationship between things like music and painting and emotion, and then what the cultural revolution sought to control. And in Wang's story, you really get a sense of the perilous position of art when it can be at one point co-opted by the regime and at another point shunned by the regime. But I really want, was curious to know what drew you to Wang's story in particular and whether you learned anything new about art while you were researching this book. Well, when I started work on it, I, was, I wanted to make sure that the book sort of encompassed many of the different aspects of the way that the impact of the Cultural Revolution continued. So, for example, looking at its politics and uh, looking at um, family relationships and so forth. And I felt culture was a hugely important part of that. Because, of course, I mean, the Cultural Revolution, as odd as it sounds, given all we've said about atrocities and, you know, two million people dying, it was also a, a, a cultural movement. Mao wanted to overhaul the culture, remake culture and through that sort of remake the souls of the Chinese people and its influences sort of clearly linger today so that was the sort of the primary focus I suppose but but then also speaking to him he is just an extraordinary man he's a force of nature he's 87 now he has an extraordinary amount of energy and passion he's very candid uh, so he is just a fascinating figure and in many ways, I mean, just a, a wonderful figure to see how somebody can go through that much suffering and turmoil and emerge from it with this real hunger for life still. Not that he's not sort of angry uh, about what happened to him or that he doesn't feel that sense of wasted time, which he very clearly does. But he has this extraordinary drive, which I think in part comes from that time. And actually, he talks about the things that he and that Chinese culture took from that time. 
So it was obviously a time of huge cultural destruction. And it was also a time of some really terrible state made art, frankly. You know, the, the jokes are that there were 800 million people watching eight model operas. And um, there's another scholar who said, well, there was only one garden in the, there was only one flower in the garden of Chinese culture, and that was made of plastic. So there's definitely a sense there was, that, you know, many of these works were sort of doctrinaire. But there were also things about them that inspired people or brought people something new, I mean, particularly in places like small villages where maybe they'd never seen uh, artworks before. Suddenly culture was being brought to them. And that's something that Wang Xilin talks about. He says, you know, well, they'd never have understood Beethoven if we, you know, they hadn't seen these model operas. So he's a fascinating figure in many regards. And I think he sort of captures the complexity of the cultural impact as well. And speaking of nostalgia, you have a really fascinating chapter about um, the educated youth, which was a sort of second phase of the Cultural Revolution after the Red Guards had sort of disbanded or it wasn't, they weren't really in force anymore, when 17 million boys and girls um, were sent to work in villages in the countryside. And they were called the educated youth. And, you know, you dissect this as something that a lot of figures, including Xi Jinping, are very nostalgic about, um, but also that it, it it was a really traumatic experience for other people. And I that must be a really interesting contradiction, This the, a time that was very hard for people, but also that they feel very nostalgic and want to remember in a positive way. Yes. And in fact, Many of the people who are nostalgic about it and choose to remember it are also people who talk about how greatly they suffered <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the very sort of odd aspect of it. And I, you know, it's not unknown for places to think about hard times in a sort of slightly rosy, rose-tinted way. If you think of something like the Waltons, looking at the Depression, or um, you think about people talking about the Blitz spirit now, but there is mm. uh, something particularly marked about the fact that these people lived through this experience, which was frankly, you know, pretty pointless. They were supposed to be sent down to help drag the country and countryside into the modern age, and they felt they just didn't really have any impact. Um, they were struggling to make a living. The farmers just felt they were kind of extra mouths to feed. They weren't really adding much because they didn't need any extra pairs of hands. So it looks sort of completely pointless and they say, oh, you know, it was desperate and, you know, I can't say it wasn't a waste of time, but then I can't say that, you know, I didn't learn from it as well. And 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 they choose to meet up and talk about it. I mean, there is this great sort of surge of interest. Um, but, but it's interesting that I think it's something that almost came from the grassroots because there had already been this upsurge of interest among ordinary people in recalling these experiences they'd had of being sent away at this very young age, not knowing whether they'd see their parents again, um, you know, often seeing friends perhaps die where they were from, you know, malnutrition and pneumonia and sort of work accidents and so forth. I mean, it was absolutely grim, but there is some sense in which sort of people feel that it made them who they are, I suppose. And in I mean, I talk about it in Red Memory, I talk about it in terms of veterans from a war or something that on the one hand, they think, well, we can't believe we went through this. And obviously, it was horrendous. But at the same time, they have this sort of pride, because they feel they went through something that younger people can't understand, and that it, it taught them something about life. 
Tanya Brannigan, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Okay, so we are back here to talk about the theme today, which is journalism and literature. And I want to start with a quote. So the other night, my friend Claire was telling me about the first sentence of Janet Malcolm's famous book, The Journalist and the Murderer, which is, get ready, every journalist who is not too stupid or full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. And I love, I mean, that's quite the statement, isn't it? Not least because (laughs) Malcolm herself is a journalist. So do you agree with her? I mean, it's such a powerful statement that I'm kind of drawn into agreement with it. (laughs) But I'm not sure I 100% do agree. I mean, that's the power of rhetoric, right? But I wonder if we might think of it or interpret it as more as a caution than as a dogma. Because I think that it's probably very, very easy for a journalist to fall into the morally indefensible, you know, like bending facts to fit their agenda, manipulating the reader, using a story for their own self-aggrandizement, all of these awful things that we know happen. Um, But I wonder if also what Malcolm's getting at is that the position of the cold observer can become morally indefensible. You know, if you're bearing witness to something totally atrocious um, and merely recording it rather than getting involved in it, I mean, I think I'm always going to feel a bit ambivalent about journalism, and I think that's okay. And maybe that quote speaks to that because, you know, you have to be hyper aware that it is a um, a, a kind of writing that has the potential to have a lot of power and also contains an enormous amount of human folly, right? Um, mm. And maybe actually the most important thing when we're reading journalism of any kind really is learning how to read it, right? Like how to evaluate your sources, And I guess remembering above all that it's still filtered through one fallible human being's perception, right? Like it's never objective truth. Yeah. And I, again, this comes from Claire's summary of the book because I haven't read it either, but it's about a journalist who got very involved with the murderer and told the murderer as, as she said, that he kind of believed him that he was innocent and wrote this book about how he was definitely guilty and a totally messed up person. So it's like, how do journalists represent themselves? How involved should they get in the case? I mean, there's something about not getting involved, but there's something about getting too involved as well. And there are just so many traps, aren't there? Um, And I guess my question is like, can something be both morally indefensible and also necessary? Um, So as I said, I haven't read the book. And so I don't know where Malcolm is going with the statement. Um, And, you know, it's definitely, I'm sure she like goes on to sort of refute it herself in some ways in the book. But my feeling is that even good journalism has to dwell in ethical gray areas, um, even if I also think it's ultimately something that is absolutely necessary for our society. Um, And so... Yeah, as you say, it's it's all about subjectivity, isn't it? It's all about who who's writing the story and sort of when you read journalism, understanding that. And I think that's even more true. You know, we're we're talking about journalism and literature today, and that's even more true when we're reading a full 
book of journalism, of a story that's constructed. And there are many forms that that can take. But one of the things that unites most books of, of journalism is that they're stories. Um, and when things become stories, they they start, a story maybe makes you more receptive to some of the blurring of lines that we're talking about here. Totally. So, you know, speaking of the blurring of lines, you know, that book's all about the ethics of journalism. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more, what do you think a journalist's ethical responsibilities are if they do decide to write a book? Well, I think, you know, kind of what you were leading me to there, but it's true. It's like one of the hardest things to do is balancing the importance of telling the truth with telling a good story. And we talked about that a bit with Tanya, you know, like how do you adhere to the facts while also tell a story that people want to listen to and read and for the full length of a book, which requires a lot of a reader's attention, right? But I think that that is where rigorous fact-checking can be very useful. And I know from friends working in this arena in investigative journalism, that that's something that American publishers are much better at funding than British publishers. And um, just the quality of the fact-based research is much higher when you have not just the author doing it themselves, but also a team of people helping them out and pinning down the exact dates and the exact times so that there can be less blurring, I guess, in service of narrative. But I also think there will just be different ethical responsibilities that come into play depending on the subject matter, right? And I think on top of that, the ethical responsibilities of the journalist are kind of split in a way, right? Like they must have an ethical responsibility towards their sources. They also have an ethical responsibility towards the reader. And I think really, you know, a headline above all is like, really, they should be thinking about whether they're the right person to tell the story at all, right? Mm. Um, And maybe have some self-reflection on their motivations for telling that particular story. I mean, I guess essentially it's, I feel ambivalent and it's complicated. (laughs) What about you? (laughs) Yeah, um, I agree. It's very complicated. And actually in terms of fact-checking, I think US magazines are quite good at that, places like The New Yorker, but publishers really don't fact-check at all. Um, full books, which is kind of crazy to think about. I mean, authors sometimes take it upon themselves, but it's never something that's built into the contract. So that's the other thing. Like, you know, there are so many books in the world that just contain wildly inaccurate things in sort of greater and lesser proportions. And that is scary to think about sometimes. But yeah, I think that, I, I think it's all about like, how are you accessing truth? And you know, as you said, we talked about Tanya with this, like memory is so slippery, right? Like somebody could tell you something that they think is true and it's still not true. And a journalist could believe something to be true based upon the conversations they've had with people and and the investigative work they've done. And it still isn't, but I think it's, it's really difficult. And I think, as you say, there's, there's a real responsibility to sources. Like I think what, for instance, in, in Janet Malcolm's book, it's, it is not really ethical to to say to a source that you're going to write one thing and then write another. I, I I think that's pretty indefensible in some ways. And maybe that means you won't get as much material, but I think people deserve to kind of understand what they're speaking on record about, for instance. Yeah, um, I agree. I, I also think, you know, I also think you have, truth is also about Narrative, I'm thinking of things like In Cold Blood um, by Truman Capote, which sometimes people call a nonfiction novel, but it's based on real life, a real life murder, and people really see it as an act of journalism. But Capote has been criticized of, of changing facts to suit his narrative, basically. And again, I think that 
that is, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I think he should have done that. Like, I think if he's writing something based upon time he spent with real people reporting on a real story, it's his responsibility to report things as true to how they happened as he can. And if he's not, then making that really, really clear. Yeah, totally. Okay, so how do you feel about the question of whether a journalist should be a character in their own book? And and sort of along those lines, do you like to read about the process of reporting? Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And honestly, for me, it's that kind of thing that keeps the ethical questions in, in check a little bit, because as a reader, you're constantly reminded that even if the tone of the writing is really all-knowing, that this information has gone through the filter of this individual's consciousness with all their inherent biases and limitations of their perspective. So if they're there in the text, I think it's a very useful reminder. Yeah, I think I agree to some extent. Um, and by inserting themselves into their books, journalists, as you say, are acknowledging the subjectivity of their experience. But then I'm like, okay, that was also one of the ideas behind new journalism in the 1960s. But those <laughs> yeah, were true. like, you know, macho men like Norman Mailer and Hunter S. Thompson, um, which is a very particular kind of subjectivity. Um, and I don't know that it's necessarily going to make me reflect on like the the slipperiness of truth or I, it's more like, oh, like Hunter S. Thompson is taking a lot of drugs and what what a cool guy he is. But I was thinking, you know, in a different way, books about the journalistic process can be really, really compelling. And I think oh, yeah. those are a great way to both tell a story, but to think around all of these ethical and moral issues and sort of like process issues as well when it comes to reporting. Um, and I'm thinking of books like She Said by Jodi Cantor and Megan Tui, which is about breaking the Weinstein story. Um, and, and that became a film. And it's like, it's basically a detective story. Yeah. And I think films can do this really well. So, you know, Spotlight or All the President's Men. Um, I, in some ways, that's my favorite kind of long form book length, you know, movie length journalism because it's about the process itself. Well, and also now podcasts, right? Podcasts are like the superlative medium for investigative journalistic narrative reporting. Yeah, totally. Well, speaking of narrative, that's a question too, isn't it? We we were touching on it a little bit earlier, but how much narrative do you think that a book about journalism needs or a book based upon journalism or of reportage needs? And do you think some finer points um, or revelation of methods or little facts can be sacrificed for narrative? I don't think facts should be sacrificed for narrative, but also, honestly, it's narrative that makes me want to read these books. You know, it's the story. And I think there's also a question here about how marketing relates to the content of a book. And I think that, you know, marketing is often selling the story, right? And then, of course, you get to the book and it's a much deeper investigation, but the, the headline can really frame how you come to something. And so if it's sold as like a sexy thriller and then you read and it's actually like a deep investigative report about somebody's murder, it's kind of like that's a, a tension, a complicated tension. But I do think, you know, good old Patrick Radden Keefe, I am his official fangirl, but I think what he is so, so masterful at is this he finds this balance between constructing an incredibly compelling narrative, but it feels like he's never doing that at the cost of his journalistic integrity or the facts. And perhaps that's because he, you know, he came up through the New Yorker school where they are really rigorously fact-checked, you know, perhaps that's part of it. I don't know, but I think it's his real talent. 
I totally agree. As you know, I love narrative. Um, and my favorite works of journalism also kind of read like novels. Um, and that runs a gamut from like sort of more memoir journalistic narratives to something like Putin's People, which is a book I represent about Putin's rise to power, which is rigorously reported, but also is just a really excellent story about one man. But I was thinking about this because I was very entranced by this book, Beyond the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo. Um, did you read that? No. It was it was published in 2012. It won the Pulitzer Prize, I think. And it tells the story of a number of characters in a, uh, a slum in Mumbai. And she lived with these people. She spent a lot of time with them. She herself is not a character in the story. Um, and she writes the book as though she's, y- y- you, the reader, are kind of living alongside the characters. And it's very affecting and compelling. And it can't be anything but an excoriation of poverty. And it's deeply human. But I do think now about a Western white woman telling the story in the way that she did, which is not to say that I don't think she should have written it, but it's also interesting to me that she kind of erased herself from that story. And it makes it harder to think about the eyes through which you're seeing the narrative. And I think that's a that's always a question in journalism is like, as you say, who's telling the story and who are the people they're telling the story about? And if there's a big power imbalance there, it's it's difficult. It's complicated. Right. So what is your recommendation on our theme, which is journalism? Well, because I can't recommend Empire of Pain again, <laughs> I want to shout out Slouching Towards Bethlehem by Joan Didion, which isn't a book. It's a collection of essays. But I think it's a really important one to include here because they're, they're essays about California and all of them appeared first in newspapers or magazines. So it's really kind of a collected works in a way. But what it made, what made it stand out so much at the time, and to me when I first read it, was her absolute conviction that it was important for her to place herself in the piece so the reader knew who was talking and who the authorial voice belonged to, which when she started doing it was really, really unusual and in direct contrast to the new journalism wanging men who you rep- uh, mentioned earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I haven't read it, but I feel like I need to. My recommendation is a classic of the genre, which is The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. And this grew out of an article in The New Yorker. um, And it has so many of the things that I want from great journalistic writing. It's, you know, impeccably researched, incredible characters, a window into a totally new world, in this case, the the trade in rare orchids in in Florida. And you guessed it, a very compelling narrative. So um, I'd really recommend that anyone read it who hasn't. I would also really recommend the movie Adaptation, which is uh, Charlie Kaufman's very meta adaptation of this book, which becomes all about the struggles of adaptation. Um, And it's a real treat if you haven't watched it. I haven't. It sounds amazing. Oh my God, it's so good. It's very, it's probably very of its time. I'd love to revisit it now. But when I was like in my early 20s, I was like, wow. You know? (laughs) Whoa. Okay, we're back here with Tanya Brannigan to give our monthly book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. Um, my book this month is a, a book called Archaeology of Loss by Sarah Tarlow, which is a really fascinating blend of memoir and academic expertise. And it actually feels like a very appropriate book to be recommending after our conversation with Tanya, um, because it is very much about 
memory and living with loss and kind of figuring out how to live in a lot of different ambiguities. It's in a very, very different context though. So Talo is an archaeologist and her specialism has always been the study of death. She's written about grief rituals and burial practices. And shortly after she became the chair of archaeology at the University of Leicester, her husband, Mark, who was also an archaeologist, fell ill. And he ended up having this undiagnosed but progressive illness that rendered him increasingly incapacitated. And this book is a memoir about that experience um, that they shared and that she lived through. But because she is an archaeologist, it's also this amazing marriage of her very personal experience and her kind of professional expertise. And I cannot tell you, it's so thoughtful. It's also so direct, which is something I really appreciated in it. And she kind of excavates this experience of caring for someone with an incurable illness and how it changes the person and how it changes you and how difficult it is. She's incredibly frank about that. And I think it's really, really um, empowering for people to have these stories in in a way that doesn't make anybody a hero or anybody a, a villain, um, but but has the kind of does the work of empathy to show you the bald facts of it, basically. And in doing so, she asks really profound questions about how you live well and also how you die well, you know, from an academic perspective and also from this personal perspective. Um, and she really gets into this incredibly difficult question of the right for a person to choose to end their own life. So I think it's a very important book. Um, and it was also actually much funnier than I expected it being. She has a really wry sense of humor that really kind of sings on the page. Um, and uh, yeah, it's one of those books that's deeply personal, but it's also profoundly a conduit to this extremely universal experience of living and dying. And I think that its honesty is very consoling. So I recommend it really, really heartily. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. I think you'd love the writing actually as well. Tanya, what's your recommendation? Well, I'm just thinking I've got to go and read Octavius now because <laughs> that does sound incredible. Um, mine is also actually an archaeology uh, by Karl Schlegel. It's called The Soviet Century, Archaeology of a Lost World. I think it's out now in the US and it's out in the UK next month, I believe. Um, and it's an extraordinary sort of encyclopedia of everyday life in the Soviet Union, which really takes in everything from old perfume brands to the quality of wrapping paper. He talks about how every era has its sort of its its surface and its feel, and that that roughness of the wrapping paper that you had in Soviet times has now given way to the sort of smoothness of plastic bags. Um, but he talks about on all sorts of levels about the things that we haven't recorded as well. So he says that there are the, you know, the sort of the very grand pompous soundtracks to sort of the rituals of power, the big sort of communist ceremonies you'd have. But there are also all the sounds that one ought to recall, um, but that are not captured. Things like uh, the slamming of the door of a, a Black Mariah as somebody's driven away, you know, the turn of the key in a cell door. And so he captures this whole world. I mean, he sort of talks about it as a, a life world. Um, and he talks about the way that life worlds, by which he means this sort of accumulation of sort of material experience and emotional experience, I suppose, lasts and often lives on long after the political structures, perhaps, which gave birth to them have disappeared. Um, so it's a, a fascinating read. It's very long. Um, I'm sort of halfway through it at the moment. 
But it's a fascinating read, and it's quite reminiscent, I think, of, say, Svetlana Epleksevich's uh, work, which people have obviously called A History of Feelings, this idea of bringing the past to life, not just through the big events or the sort of the great figures or, or even through the kind of the oral history of ordinary people, but through quite mundane things and through the, the physical objects uh, and so forth that lie around us and the experiences and the events. Oh, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, it sounds so good. And it, I see how it chimes with your book that actually those ordinary things are the stuff of memory it, it, so often um, and are so essential to how we remember and why we remember. So uh, I am recommending a book that's quite different from those and not in archaeology. Uh, it's the novel Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark, which I just finished the 32-hour long audiobook of, feeling very proud of myself for that, which was read brilliantly by Simon Preble. So listeners may remember me raving about Clark's second novel, Piranesi, which is a very slim, beautiful, mysterious book that came out a few years ago and was published, I think, something like 14 years after the publication of Jonathan Strange. But this was her first novel, um, and it was a sensation when it was published in 2004. And I've been hearing things about it for years, but thought maybe it wouldn't be for me because it sounded like kind of high fantasy and that doesn't tend to be my genre. But then I read Piranesi and I said, well, you know, if I will read anything this woman writes after that experience. So, um, and a friend had recommended the audiobook. So I, I started reading it and it's an epic book, truly epic in every sense of the word. It is set in a sort of alternate England during the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s. And in this version of history, magic was widely practiced during the Middle Ages. And there was even a sort of half man, half fairy king of the North who was a magician who ruled for many years. But magic has left England, and the only people who practice magic are scholars who study it, but they don't actually practice. Um, but then two pra practical magicians appear, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, who bring magic back to England, and lots ensues, um, including sort of like battlefield scenes with magic and meddling fairies and enchantments and uh, cameos from Byron and King George III and Wellington and they go to Venice and so much happens. Um, and it's also written as kind of like a scholarly tome would have been in its time. So there are all these footnotes about the history of magic and there's a very wry narrator. And uh, it's so it's, as you can kind of tell from that description, it's borrowing from lots of other stories and genres, but it is so utterly itself. And it was just a world that the more I listened, the more I wanted to be in it. Um, so if if that sounds at all tempting to you, I'd really recommend it. And I would really recommend the audiobook. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Tanya Brannigan and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram, and you can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It makes an enormous difference to our moods and our lives, and it helps <laughs> us reach new listeners. <laughs> we'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.